Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Oh, look, it's a Monday. Happy Monday. That's kind of how we feel, isn't it? Well, I feel quite chubby. <laughs> no, you don't. I'm not going to let you get away with that. Ooh. You've been absolutely miserable today. Been miserable. You've been glass quarter full to everything. Um, Even our producer, Rosie, has said you've been Mary quite contrary. No, she was a contrary Mary. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. That's perfectly all right. So um, I was intrigued. Did you watch... Um, the, actually, because we were going to talk about Denmark, and I've decided I'd rather like the Danish after their rather lovely change of power at the head of their royal family. So you're not going to pick on Denmark? No, I'm not going to pick on Denmark. I'm going to, I, don't you think that's a great photograph of the... It's in the Times today, and no doubt elsewhere, of the abdicated monarch walking away across a room and her son, who looks a little bit not certain he's up to the task, sitting at his new desk... Yes, he's got... He really reminds me of somebody and I can't quite put my finger on it. Denmark's monarchy traces its origins to 10th century Viking king Gorm the Old. It's Gorm the Old. That's who it is. <laughs> is it Gorm? It's Gorm. Did either of us go out with him? <laughs> I think, did I it marry was, him? <laughs> it was in the 10th century, so it's possible. Um, Gorm the Old. Gorm. Yeah. So Get he them. just looks... It's gonna, it will come to me. Now, I'll text you in the middle of the night oh, if it gosh. does. Love no, it's definitely, awake. it's somebody in a drama. And I can't quite think who. But yes, it is a great picture. Yeah, it's a really good picture. And uh, the people of Denmark seem to be very excited about the whole thing. They were thronging through the streets, weren't they? Yes, I think there is an underbelly. There's not a lot to do in Denmark. Of anti-royal feeling. Is there? In Denmark, yes. Oh. yeah, Because uh, the, the old queen, mm. she took away the royal titles, didn't she, from... Oh, her younger son's children, yes, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. there was quite a sentiment building. They were too big. Yeah. Mm. So, but I suppose it's the same as this country. You know, if you were just going to look at the crowds gathering in the mall, yeah. you'd think that everybody was wearing some kind that's, of that's a... That's very true. I think all was well. Yep. And, and it's not... There are mutterings, Jane. There are mutterings. There are mutterings. Speaking of which, we've got yes. Robert Hardman on our programme later in the week. Now, is that confirmed? I think so, yes. It's not confirmed. It's not we can't confirmed. talk about it. <laughs> Forget it. Forget I mentioned it. <laughs> but uh, maybe if he's listening uh, or his publisher's listening. I, I always like a chat with Robert Hardman. I think he if genuinely... it's not later this week, then it's in a week and a half. Oh, well, all right then. So, so he's coming on. Week. Thank you, Ian. Yeah. But he does really know his onions, doesn't he? I mean, he's like properly... Oh, he knows his regal onions. Yeah, that's he, for sure. He properly know, knows yeah. them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's Robert Hardman, who's written a new book uh, about the king. 
which is being serialised in some publication this week. Uh, but I think it will be very interesting to talk to him because he's um, he's definitely got some nuggets in the book from the mm. sound of things. Now, can I just have a tiny little whinge before we get going on all the fun stuff? Uh, have you come across the app Soundprint? No. Oh, it's fantastic, Jane. So if you download it and accept the thingamajiggy what's it cookies... Soundprint. Yeah, in yeah. your phone. Uh, it will flash up and activate when you go out and about and find yourself in a loud place. And it's a really, really brilliant app where you can log the decibels of the place that you're in, you know, restaurant, gig, bar mm. or whatever, and it will send it back to that venue to let them know if lots of people felt that it was a little bit too loud. And we went out twice at the weekend. Hey, get me, what a party animal. Uh, we well, went. You didn't leave me an opportunity to say that, but congratulations. <laughs> we went out for just a really nice normal supper in a neighbourhood restaurant. And? 92 decibels but what was that music or other people talking so that was music and then people trying to talk over the music and it was kind of banging house music in a restaurant in a restaurant just okay. a normal restaurant you know not yeah, kind of yeah. fancy schmancy and then we just went to the pub in our local environment and still noisy and still i think that peaked at about 89 or 90 and it's just and i know it's just such a, a kind of whinge for the older person but actually they were too evenings that should have been really nice and they were just so uncomfortable because everyone was shouting couldn't hear but i just wanted to give the app a bit of a plug because it's one of those things that if enough people use it mm. then uh, it will alert the owners of these establishments to the fact that maybe quite a few people in there just don't need the music to be that loud to be shouting over and you know obviously there's a joke coming at you that it's so bloody loud just asking them to turn the music down they haven't got the phone started don't be trying you. to say so you no. just storm out but it's one of the things you notice about getting older is just how one of the reasons you're very tired at the end of a social occasion is that it is, it's quite it? a struggle it's exhausting unless yeah. i'm wearing my glasses i can't lip read uh, and so, because you need to be able to see somebody really quite well in order to be able to read their lips. Obviously, I'm not a trained lip reader. I know some people are, um, and it's a great skill, by the way. Um, I, I just, I, I just feel completely spent at the yeah. end of an evening shouting, no, totally. and straining to hear. We felt exactly the same way, and and actually, when when we've been to the pub, it was to see some some friends I haven't seen for ages, and and we had to make another arrangement to catch up to actually do all of the talking that we're expected to be able to do. Mm. It was just a pointless evening, actually. Could they just push and a bit of paper across the table and you could read out? Well, I mean, it, it, it might have come to that. So I just wanted to spread the word about Soundprint, Soundprint and I think quite a lot of people um, might already have come across it. But if you haven't, I think it's a very good thing. That's it. Very good. And we both wanted to talk about Annie Nightingale, who died very sadly. Actually, I think on, died on Thursday. It was announced on Friday. And... Um, you know, she was just a very significant woman um, for any of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s and 80s and listened to the radio. I don't think it is unfair to say there was only Annie Nightingale. Lots of great female presenters and broadcasters have come along since, but for a long, long time, there was only Annie. Yep. And her longevity in the industry, I think was actually down to lots of things. She really, really, really knew her music. Mm. So she just had a knowledge base that you couldn't argue with. I think her enthusiasm, because she kind of changed tack, didn't she, on dance music, having first kind of gone, oh, I'm not sure about this, it just all sounds the same. <laughs> she actually then went, oh, no, this is brilliant. So she just embraced a whole new genre of music in her 60s. 
uh, which I don't think you could uh, you couldn't criticise her enthusiasm. It was just absolutely no. bloody wonderful. Mm. But also one of the lovely things that has come out since her death, and and actually I do think she did know it when she was alive, was the gratitude that so many other women and younger men had for her kindness and her mentoring. And I didn't know her at all in a professional context because you know no, I hadn't worked with her music DJ or anything. Mm. But I did come to know her because we asked her to become the first patron of a lobby group that a very remarkable woman, Maria Williams, deputy editor of Woman's Hour, editor of Saturday Live, uh, set up to try and celebrate the achievements of women in the industry and to fight for equality. And we asked Annie to be the first patron and she just didn't even blink. She said yes. And her weight meant that people took sound women seriously right from the get-go. She couldn't have been lovelier. She turned up to all of the events. I've been contacted by so many people over the weekend who just said she spoke to me, she listened to me, she gave me all this advice with no airs and graces. And she didn't need to do that. Some women who have really had to fight to be in the industry, I think, pull up the drawbridge a bit. You can say that again. In later years. Let's name... No, we won't. No, but also if that's how they feel because they're exhausted by the whole thing, then Mm. fair enough. But Annie just didn't. She did exactly the opposite and I thought she was just remarkable and lovely. And when somebody like that dies, there is something truly magical that happens where people actually pick up the phone, don't they? Because they want to talk about her. Mm. So the conversations that I had over the weekend were just so heartwarming, Jane. And I'm sure you had exactly the same thing. What a testament to a great life that people want to do that. Yeah. So, um, yes, rest in peace, Annie Nightingale, because you were special. And I think uh, you were significant and you wore it all so lightly. And I think that's very significant. Wasn't she cool as well? She was also incredibly cool. So cool. Yeah, still cool in her 80s, which... It's it's not all. We, I mean, it's not. We can't really. No, I'm just not no. going to be. <laughs> so I'm not cool now, and I won't be cool in twenty years' time. Um, but uh, she was without question. So that's good. Um, right. What a shoe you've got on. What's that? Yes. Uh, thank you for noticing. These are my new. I got these from the kids at Christmas. My new Adidas campers, campus trainers. Wow. Look, they, I didn't notice those. They are the last word in comfort. Have they got that raised bump so yes. it keeps your arch up? My arch is well up uh, and I've thoroughly enjoyed bouncing through the streets of London ever since I got them on Christmas Day. Well, we're going to have to photograph those even put them on the Insta. Yeah, Do you know, I was trying good, to explain to uh, one of the offspring uh, about, about raised arches yeah. <laughs> only the other night. Oh, mother, do tell us more about raised arches. Well, no, there was a bit of a thing when I was young where it was a, it was a little bit common if you if your what? arches had fallen. Fallen arches yes. were common. Was that the people who didn't couldn't do national service because they had flat feet? Yes, yeah. I think a fallen arch was it was really the sign that something terrible had gone wrong with your upbringing. <laughs> Okay, that I didn't know. Um, Okay, well, as far as I'm aware, I haven't suffered from a fallen arch. Well, you're certainly raising them again because that's the kind of USP of of that brand, isn't it? It Getting these was easily the best thing that happened over over Christmas. Actually, I've had a really another weekend of challenging meal making. I mean, I'm not the best cook, and I freely admit it. Occasionally, I hit the jackpot, but it's usually fluky. I made some soup on Friday, which I overheard the eldest child saying to the younger one. Oh, you get used to it. <laughs> it's not really. Delia that's, Smith never has to put up with that. No, that's a kind of line out of a prison drama. <laughs> I mean, it's just, 
I was doing my best. It was I just perhaps I didn't put what it through. What flavour was it? Well, it was roast cauliflower, and it was one. I I don't think I. I <laughs> don't think I'd put it through the food processor in quite the way it should have gone through. Anyway, they were right. It wasn't very nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was just when you hear someone saying, oh, you get used to it. Oh, dearie me. Uh, Fiona said, I love the book. An elderly lady is up to no good. In brackets, I hated the French cemetery book. Uh, so An Elderly Lady is Up to No Good by Helene Thurston is our book club book number four we'll be discussing it in about five weeks time it's 184 pages long lots of people are really loving it uh, I think it's just it's one of those titles like my sister the serial it's a great killer title. Uh, which just draws you in, doesn't it? And I can't wait to get started myself. Uh, and uh, Fiona has very much enjoyed it. So thank you for that. And uh, we're in continuing the theme of uh, compliments that weren't really compliments, but might have been intended to be compliments. Uh, a listener says, oh, don't mention my name, don't worry, we won't. I'm really enjoying this worst comments thread. Here's one of the worst I've ever had. Anyone else with your genes would have been beautiful. I'll never forget that. But actually, I didn't find it insulting because it was so comically awful. Do you think people learn these lines in advance or think them up on the spot? Another line that was said to me during a breakup when I was quite young was, I think you're probably a Hufflepuff after all. This was obviously intended to be a real insult, but I couldn't take it seriously. All this useful feedback and here I am not taking any of it on board. By the way, the answer to getting through Christmas alone is not to do Christmas, except for some baking if you like that kind of thing, and go on a solar holiday in the new year. All the better if you stay in the grounds of a castle. I've never felt so refreshed for January. Oh, well, that's, um, that's a top tip. Uh, you don't tell us which castle, uh, but we can probably all just imagine. Well, I'm glad you had such a lovely time. What's a Hufflepuff? A Hufflepuff is a character in a children's... Oh, gosh, a children's book... Hang on, let's consult Eve. It's one of the schools in Harry Potter. It's a Slytherin Hufflepuff. Oh, okay, it's a Harry Potter thing. It's a Harry Potter thing. Thank right. you, Eve. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can get back to your 20s now. Yes. That's lovely. You don't need to listen to us anymore. <laughs> okay. Just sit there quietly. Uh, Becca says, keep up the good work. Uh, in response to your correspondent, who was informed that she was attractive but not pretty, <laughs> I'm still somewhat perturbed by the strange catcall I received as a student in Cambridge over 15 years ago. Cycling down from my college towards town, a young man made the effort to shout across a busy street just two words. I love this. Mildly attractive. Isn't that extraordinary? shit. I'm still in two minds about whether it was a compliment or an insult, but given that I was just popping to Sainsbury's for a pint of milk, it was probably a fair assessment, if an unwarranted one. And Becca goes on to say, I've been on the wrong end of so many catcalls. It feels like it's almost par for the course, especially as a female runner, but this is the only one that's really stuck. If anything, I think I'd rather mildly attractive than some of the other more aggressively sexual compliments that I've received whilst pounding the streets of south-east West London. Uh, well, Becca, I, I know what you mean. I'm sure that you've had all kinds of things sent in your direction. But isn't that extraordinary that a man just thought to shout out you know, a kind of passive-aggressive comment on you. That's just bizarre. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, have you ever, when walking past a man, said anything about their, their appearance? appearance? No, of course not. No. no. I mean, if you were to ask me, have I thought it, the answer would be probably almost every time. Because yeah, yeah. that's just human nature, isn't it? But you don't 
No, no, of course not. I mean, if anybody wants to know what male privilege is, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Well, that maybe really that's it. something that you and I could do in our dotage as well as some really heavy trolling. Yes. Is we could just <laughs> wander around going, ugh, or fwoar, <laughs> and see where we land. Yes. Yeah. Uh, right. Oh, gosh, I was going to say, my dad has been to the cinema again and he did want to do a review, but I've left it. In fact, he's done one. Uh, what did he say? Anatomy of a Fall? No. Uh, one Life. One the, life. The film about Nicholas Winton. Okay. And actually, I can remember the review because it's one of his shorter uh, efforts. Highly recommended, very good ending, a real tearjerker. So if you're, for whatever reason, thinking of going along to that film, you've now got the endorsement of my dad, who says, well worth your time. He's cropped up in correspondence as well. Oh, right. He'll be uh, pleased about this. Yeah, so this is uh, anonymous. Uh, hearing you mention this is about my dad being a fan of the sarong. I was it surprised by that, can I say? Brought to mind many happy memories mm. of my sadly now dead, very beloved father sporting them too. Like yours, it was a habit he formed whilst living in the Far East, but it stayed with him for life. And it was quite the look on an OAP when worn in darkest Sussex. <laughs> <laughs> Quite bold, I mean, it? down Brighton Way, they've seen it all, haven't they? <laughs> Happily, this slightly eccentric practice continues as my brother has inherited his father's penchant for breezy summer wear and regularly slips into one. Our family favours the tubular style rather than the plain sheet towel format and there's a fine art to tie them correctly to avoid startling anyone. I highly recommend Jane's father gives it a go. <laughs> Uh, with the addendum, maybe wait for a heat wave rather than pitching it to him right now. That's okay. lovely, isn't it? Well, um, I will certainly mention it to him. And if it heats up on Merseyside, <laughs> <laughs> which it probably won't for the next couple of months, he'll slip into a sarong. Yeah. I think because we, we were searching for some uh, merchandising ideas, weren't we? And I think an off-air sarong would be fantastic. Because you could use it. Our listeners would find 27,000 right. different yeah. things to do with a sarong. It'd they be would. a baby papoose, it'd be a shopping bag, it'd yeah. be a mop, it'd be a towel. I think we're on to an absolute winner. It'd be a, some sort of headgear. There's any number of things. You're right. Okay. I once did have uh, a jock strap. Did you? Which I gave away on my radio show, yeah. Okay. What, why did you have a jock strap? It was a very long... I can't remember how it started, but um, it was when I was working for the BBC in Herefordshire and Worcestershire and the station logo was an apple for Herefordshire cider and a pear for Worcestershire perry. And we had the design put onto a jock strap. Very effective, right. actually. A big apple and a big pear. Right. A I find get it. Jock straps. I mean, having, you know, basically grown up in an all-female household and been to an all-girls school... Mm. I think the first time that I saw a gentleman wearing a jock strap, I just couldn't, I just couldn't quite believe it. And I did, no. you know, because obviously we did, we, you know, we never, we, we never, we went, never went into a, a male sports changing room. There was no. Didn't you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Another shocking thing about a my revelation. <laughs> But I do remember the first time I saw somebody sporting one, just thinking, is that some kind of, you know, sexual thing going on? I had no idea it was like a proper sport. It's just a sport garment. Yes, yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, oh I, I thought, yeah, I just think I've never thought rude things about jockstrap. <laughs> <Really? laughs> I mean, I, I must have mentioned it before, but when How I... How often have you thought about well, a jockstrap? No, I've had to think about it because when I left that radio station, I had a leaving do and different times they hired a stripper who stripped down to his jockstrap which was the one that 
we've given away on the programme. Okay, that's quite yeah. something, isn't it? Anyway, yeah. like I say, it's all a long time ago. This well, it's not that long ago, because actually when I left Saturday Live, second mention, haven't mentioned it for years, the team gave me a Saturday Live for Jazzle. What, you had to go for the appointment? <laughs> no, it was like a set. You could buy, when when the vajazzle was a thing, you could yeah. buy a little set of lots of different stones could and you things know? like that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I've never used it. It's still there on the shelf. <laughs> I have no idea whether but that's true. What's okay, that about? prove it by bringing in the vajazzle set tomorrow, please. Uh, happily do that. Meg says, uh, feel free to use my first name. I just have. I love listening. Oh, no, we don't read that bit out. Uh, oh, she's got a five-month-old and is off on maternity leave at the moment. Hope it's going all right. I would say the first five months are the most challenging, aren't I they? I think they're so bewildering. You're just in a, on a different planet. Mm. Yep. And then fast forward 20 years or so, and honestly, you hardly lose sleep about them at all. Much. On the topic of feedback you can do nothing about, I was reminded of my recent experience when having my caesarean section. I had a postpartum hemorrhage immediately after my daughter was born. Ooh. Oh dear. And while still cut open on the table, the operating table, I was informed by the surgeon that my uterus was failing to contract and that I was losing too much blood. In that moment, illogically, I felt somehow as if I should be able to do something to help if I hadn't been immobilised with the epidural, with people rummaging around in my insides. Luckily, they did stop the bleeding and all was well in the end. But I can certainly say I've never experienced anything quite so alarming as mid-operation feedback on how badly my body was performing. And Meg, I'm so sorry that happened. I'm delighted that you and your daughter are doing well now. Uh, but I can completely see what she means. You know, some some surgeon tells you, your uterus is failing to contract. It's like there's a lot of language around women's bodies, and particularly maternity and obstetrics. You know, expressions like um, incompetent cervix. It's a really weird thing to say, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's quite judgmental. Um, so, Meg, I'm glad things are okay now, but um, but what a shame. How embarrassing to have a uterus that didn't contract in quite the right way. Well, I think there's something so judgmental about an awful lot of women's mm. experiences yeah, no, of true. birth, yeah. where there's such a fine line between um, being the patient and the victim, actually. And I think, yeah. you know, an awful lot of women, as we're now learning have felt that they were the victim of childbirth, not really the patient. I think you're right. I think there are going to be... Well, I really hope that there are more explicit conversations over... I fear there will be over the next decade or so about maternity services in this country, because that's what we're focusing on, obviously. But, I mean, we've got daughters. It's in our interest to make them better and safer, and um, I hope we do. Uh, but that isn't a great experience, Meg. Thank you very much for the email. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, we've got lots and lots of emails about uh, pornography, and I would suggest that we dive into our recorded interviews with our experts and maybe kind of um, round everything up as the week progresses yes. because we're having a special week talking about all the issues to do with pornography on the show, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And tomorrow we should say we're going to talk to Sean Russell, who is going to talk about um, his experience of porn addiction. Uh, but today we've got two interviews, haven't we? We have. Our first interview is quite an important one because I think it goes to the place where most people are most worried about pornography, which is how children are viewing it and what then happens once children have viewed it. Uh, but there are some really, really striking statistics that you might like to furnish all of these conversations with. One in five of the nearly 14 million people who watch porn online in the UK do so during the working day. Is that you? The UK is second in the world for the number of searches for porn, only beaten by the US. And it doesn't really matter if you're a consenting adult watching consenting adults, but there has been this huge shift in the last two decades. And just the prevalence of pornography and the type of pornography you can now find is just a click away for loads of users. One charity recently found that one in five teenagers thought that they had a porn habit. One in 10 felt that they were addicted. And then we we heard this horrible, horrible news last week that half of all child sexual offences are committed by other youngsters and violent pornography and the fact that so many kids see it is blamed for that rise. It's the dark underbelly of the phrase, if you can't see it, you can't be it. So we thought we'd start this week with Rachel D'Souza, who is the fantastic children's commissioner and pornography is a subject really troubling her too. Most children have seen pornography now by the age of 13. I think that's that's really a shocking stat. And just to illustrate that, I had a group of children in here with a past secretary estate and we were chatting about issues for children. And one eight-year-old boy, a little boy from primary school, started to get extremely upset. And when I talked to him about what his concern was, it was just clear that he'd seen porn. He didn't understand that he'd seen porn. But when he explained to me what he'd seen, I realised, and obviously I did the safeguarding bit and talked to his teacher, but what I, what I was able to say to him was that's what you saw was not real. It was people acting and, you you know, and don't worry. And I think the most insidious thing is not those very, very extreme examples of which I will give you give you some. But it's the fact that pretty much every child that you meet will have seen the kind of porn you cannot believe that they would have seen. That is violent, that's anti-women, that's degrading, that's showing non-consensual sex, showing unrealistic images. And they're seeing that in the playground. One of the things I did was call for, I wanted to see whether pornography was impacting peer-on-peer -peer sexual abuse. I was very privileged to be able to get all of the transcripts of a sexual abuse referral clinic in a couple of areas and read them and analyze them and read what the young perpetrators of sexual abuse were saying and those children who had been sexually abused by their peers. And both sides you can you could see in their testimonies showed that they absolutely had been watching porn, were enacting it, and that the child victims of child perpetrators were having 
these things that, that, that had been seen online acted out on them. And I think that's just horrendous. How does a government and how do the authorities prevent that from happening in the future? What is the role of state in stopping a child being able to see that? I mean, we have just passed as a nation the online safety bill. And this really is, I think, the state's response. It's got cross-party support. Some wanted it to be stronger. Some wanted various elements in that weren't in. But it is groundbreaking legislation. And I think most importantly, it's the, the online safety bill is a really strong message to these global tech companies. Because don't forget where children are seeing porn is first off on Twitter. They see it more there than they see it on pornography sites, you know, the, the, the sort of private sites. And then they see it on Insta, they see it on Snapchat. So the online safety bills, for the first time, we've got legislation in this nation saying to these global tech companies, enough is enough. We are not going to allow this anymore. You are going to make sure these images are taken down. You are going to make sure that the children on sites are the right ages and the material that they're seeing is not illegal. It's for the right age. So in terms of the state's response, I think that online safety legislation, and I know there's still consultations going. I'm still waiting to see the children's code. I'm holding the government to account to make sure it's strong enough. The job is not yet done, but that legislation has gone through. And I think that's massively important. It is, of course, not going to be enough because we need parents, schools and everyone to to be part of this. But I am pleased it's there and I think it's a step forward. Given that we live in a globally connected world, does it really make a difference what individual countries do? Isn't that one of the huge problems that we might have firm legislation in this country, but other countries don't? And you don't have to be particularly technologically aware in order to make that leap and just be in somebody else's jurisdiction in the same way that the tech companies are not based in this country, but they can be in our eyeline. I think what I'm really concerned about is practically where are children seeing this stuff? It's it's on social media sites. You're absolutely right that these social media companies are global, this stuff is ubiquitous, but we have to start somewhere. And I think empowering Ofcom to fine and I would want to go as far as imprison tech bosses, you know, to really hold them to account, perhaps put some stinging fines in place. That's a good start. We need to make sure that the kind of children's code that is going to come in with the online safety bill is strong enough. But as I say, it will never be enough. I want children to have digital access. I'm not a banner. I'm not going to ban children from also. I don't think that's fair at all. I think what we need is the social media companies. We need them to change, not our children. I think a first step is holding companies to account. I've tried. I've had them in to see me every six months. Snap, Twitter, Google, Apple, all of them in and try to hold them to account on the things that I've seen online that children are seeing, on what age children are, on how they're getting access, on taking down things that children complain about and and their abject failure to deal with all of those. I've had them in and basically realised in the months I was working with them that we needed legislation because they were not going to step up and do it themselves. Allowing them to self-regulate wasn't working. When you had those executives in front of you and you're actually showing the images that are available on their platforms, did you get the sense that they were actually quite shocked at what they could see or were they just very kind of like, yeah, sure? They were used to being challenged in this way. They often sent, some of the companies sent QCs as their representatives 
to try to give me, you know, and had very well prepared presentations. In the end, what I did was say, I'm going to give you 10 minutes each to speak on this. Age verification, how many underage were on site. I asked them a series of questions. I allowed them to do their prepared spiel. And then I showed them the reality. I'd say, look at this. This is what we've seen. They had very well prepared answers. Occasionally, off the record, I had very good conversations that showed that a number of them were aware and were concerned. But there was definitely a line on this. Well, the thing is, quite a lot of those people would have been parents themselves, wouldn't they? And we do need to talk about parenting because I think there's just such a massive difficulty for many good, decent parents to actually know the language to use when we're trying to talk to our children about Mm -hmm. porn and actually an unwillingness to go and view the stuff ourselves so we can understand what the impact might be. How do we get round that Do we really need to have a, I think, much more honest conversation about the kind of sexual acts our children are seeing and how we can talk about them? And you can hear in my voice that I can't really bring myself to use all of the terms that we, you and I, in this conversation probably need to be using. I think that's an incredibly good point. And I mean, I'm a mum too. I'm a mum of a 20-something. And we would giggle around sitting having some of these conversations even now let alone so I do understand this I'm also a teacher who's taught for 30 odd years I've been a head teacher for 30 odd years and taught relationships and sex education so I've also seen it seen it and had to do it and try and do it well as well so I think there's parents and there's schools with parents one of the first things I did was get 100 or so 16 to 21 year olds into the department for education when I when I started here what I thought was that is the generation that's really grown up with and I asked them what do you wish your parents had known and it was really really interesting one of the things that came across very strongly with one of our parents to talk to us about it you know when we come home from school and mom says how was your day did anything happen and we just go uh you know it really matters that, that you're asking and I think that's actually quite heartwarming they, they wanted to be able to turn to their parents with their concerns and they wish they had been able to and some of them wish they had done sooner when they were little they worry about doing it they were worried about getting into trouble one of the big bits of advice for the adults from that group was talk early talk often and do it in an age-appropriate way don't worry about it so they were like don't put us in the room and have the conversation because everybody wants to run screaming from that conversation, you know, that kind of one-off. And I think it's a bit like when I started and talked about that eight-year-old boy saying he'd seen something and mum talking to him about that would be, would be that, oh, that's people acting, it's not real. At eight, that's, that's probably the right kind of language. As you get older and as a teen, both school and parents need to be able to have the language to be able to have conversations about what they're seeing that really the teenagers were living in a parallel universe in terms of what they're experiencing and seeing and what their parents thought they did talk practically as well about boundaries they were like keep us off social media as long as possible when we're eight or nine we should be out playing when we're teenagers no phones to bed don't worry about putting time boundaries on it even if we push back so very sensible and very practical. And can we also talk about the way that women are often portrayed in pornography? Because do you think that there will ever be a time where you would be able to separate what you see and how you then treat women in the real world? Or have we kind of got to a point where we just, I don't know, are we too accepting of the fact that pornography often degrades women? 
this is a huge issue and it was one that I wanted my office to look at and see whether we could actually see any causal link between what boys and girls were seeing and their sexual behaviour. So we did a, a nationally representative piece of work where we talked to a thousand young people over 16 and it was quite shocking. So we could really see how sexual behaviours in young adults were being impacted. So with, you know, half of the girls we talked to saying they'd experienced a sexually violent act and with a large proportion of the young people we talked to, and these were older 18 ups, but saying that they had thought that girls would enjoy violent sexual acts and girls thought that too. Now, I just look at that and think, what a massive change in behaviours at such an early age compared to 20, 30 years ago. We just wouldn't have seen or thought of sexuality in that way. So clearly, young people's sexual behaviours are being affected by what they're seeing. Do you think that you can resensitise a desensitised teenager? I do. I do. And I say that not as a, you know, a research scientist. I say that as someone who has been a teacher and a head teacher and a mother and so spends a lot of time with children. Certainly in that teenage period, as the brain is developing, as you're finding yourself in the world, you're open to developing your understanding. I, I not only not only think you can do it, I think I, as a teacher and as a head teacher, I've seen it done and done it. So I think we have, the adults have the power in their hands here. Some really good conversations from the adults and really good teaching, good support from home can make the difference. I really do believe that. But I do think we need the legislation in as well. We need to try to plug this stream of heinous material and anti-female material and aggressive porn that boys are seeing. We need to stop as much of it as we can because it's not good for them. It's not good for their developing brains and it's not good for their relationships. That is Dame Rachel D'Souza, who is the Children's Commissioner for England. Uh, so let's get another view. This is from Dr Fiona Vera Gray, who is Deputy Director of the Child and Woman Abuse Studies Unit at London Metropolitan University. She's also written a, a book I really do recommend, actually. It's out in February and it's called Women on Porn. Now, I asked Dr Vera Gray about a point that Rachel, Rachel D'Souza made there just at the end of that interview about the impact of seeing some acts of sexual violence. What has that done to the way people actually have sex in the real world? So I, the way that I think about these things a lot of the time is through a concept called sexual scripts, which is about the ways that it shapes our sexual practices, it shapes our sexual desires, but moves away from this causal monkey see, monkey do kind of idea that we watch violent pornography and then we go out and want to have violent sex. It's for so long, our thinking has been really tied up on that and it's limited us. It's limited and narrowed the way that we think about harm because it's very difficult to prove that one particular input to a human person, very complicated, results in one particular output, right? We're just not that simple. We take in lots and lots of messages all of the time and we're all situated in different ways that means that we make sense of those messages differently. So it's meant that a lot of research which has tried to focus on cause and effect hasn't found 
um, a really definitive cause and effect. And if that's the only way we think about harm, I think that limits us. Okay. So the way that I think about it instead is the way that it shapes our sexual practices, the way that it sits there as a script that's a dominant voice about what sex is, what it encompasses, what we should enjoy about it. And really particularly, I think it was mentioned by the Children's Commissioner and yourselves as well earlier, about gender. You know, porn mm. tells a story not just about sex, but it also tells a story about gender and a story about race. And we need to be thinking more about what that story is and whether or not we think that that story fits with, as a society, the stories that we want circulated. So what do you do uh, about young boys, and they are in some cases very young boys, having actual sex for the very first time and imagining that the way they should behave is what they have seen in, let's be honest, completely mainstream pornography? Yeah, yeah. Um it's very difficult. So so my research has been with women, right? It's been with women and girls. I've interviewed 100 women um, and girls in a book that's coming out in, in February. And talking to... So the impact that that has on boys, I think that that's something that we need to do some more work on. But what I was really interested in is what impact does that have on girls? Because we're no longer in a position where it's only boys watching pornography or where it's only men watching pornography. So statistics are showing it's about a third of women are watching porn. That goes up to about two thirds when you're looking at younger women and girls. And so very much what I'm interested in as a feminist is what are those messages that are being sent to girls? And again, you mentioned earlier this idea that young boys are thinking that what girls want are to be choked, to be spat on, to have their hair pulled. But also what I've learned from talking to young women is that young women are thinking that that's what they should like. And that's the problem, isn't it? So we, aren't, we aren't watching what we want to watch. We're watching what is made available to us. So I did some research with a colleague, Professor Claire McGlynn from Durham University in 2021 when it was published, and we analysed the content on the top three mainstream sites that was on the first page, and we worked with... Um, computer people, uh, to be able to do it so that the sites didn't know that we were the same user coming to the page. We had the permission of the sites to do it. Right. Um, and it meant that we were able to see what is the content that the sites themselves are choosing to show, because I think it's a really important point. We often think about supply and demand, you know, that supply responds to demand. But in pornography, it's, it's different, right? First-time users are being shown material that they may not have even imagined would exist on those sites. And we wanted to be able to find out what that was and also to push back on the arguments that always come out of the mouths of these porn companies that it's very much about individual users, individual choices, mm. and any discussion about regulation is an impact on individual sexual freedom. And we want to say, no, this is also about corporate responsibility. What are you showing someone when they come to your site? The sites could be like Google. It could just be a blank page with a search bar. Type in what you want, but they're not. They're designed specifically to evoke. I've got a, a colleague at work, Maria Garner, talks about panicked arousal. It evokes a sense of panicked arousal, an overwhelming arousal that works to overwhelm any internal sense of conflict, any internal sense that what you're seeing might be. One of the women in my book talked about it as a, um, a conflict between her pleasure and her principles, that what's arousing her it's conflicting with her principles, but it's still arousing her. And right. besides, but, but let, you know, we, we, there is a limit to how just how how explicit we can be live on radio at half past four in the afternoon. But that lies at the heart of of most people's approach to pornography and attitude to their own use of pornography, because it's hard for many of us to come to terms with the sort of material that we actually do find arousing. It may be something that we could never discuss even with our very, very closest friends. Absolutely, absolutely. And what that's meaning is that we're not talking about it. 
So we're not talking about it. This is something that is in everybody's homes. You know, your colleagues are watching it. Your friends are watching it. People on the train are watching it, sometimes actually on the train opposite you. Uh, your kids are watching it. Their teachers are watching it. Judges are watching it. Jury members are watching it. But we're not talking about it. We're not talking about the content of it ever. Everyone's too scared to talk about what are they actually looking for? How does it make them feel? And it means that we're not talking about the fact that it is evoking the sense of conflict. I think that the debates so far around pornography have been very split around this binary. You either watch it and you love it or you don't watch it at all and you hate it. Mm. And what I found for women, and I think it probably rings true for men, but I can't prove that, is that actually it's much more blurry. It's much more in between. It's much more that people are watching this, but feeling really conflicted about it. Uh, you know, that, like you said, that they've been aroused to things that actually they don't want to tell anybody that that's what they're watching. And so then when you think about that in terms of adults, and then as the Children's Commission was saying, how then are adults going to talk to children about it if we can't even talk to each other mm. about it? It's it's just being silent. Where do you think we might be, though, in 10 or 15 years' time when the children who we are referring to at the moment are adults themselves? It's really hard. So... I want to be an optimist. And, and part of what I have seen, actually, is that with younger people and in my research with younger women, so 18 to 22, 23, they're very critical of pornography. And they're very critical in a different way, maybe, than women who are slightly older are because they have grown up with it, because they have seen its impact personally. They've experienced it themselves. They've experienced it through their male uh, friends and intimate partners. So the optimistic part of me wants to think that actually these young people are going to become very critical of pornography, you know, and, and very able to actually talk about some of the harms in ways that perhaps, you know, people who are slightly older, who want to think about it in terms of a sex positive, you know, this is really helpful and exploratory, but don't actually understand the impact that it's having when you're accessing this material before you've had sex yourself and what yeah. that's doing, setting up your templates going forward and what that means for your ability to access sexual freedom so I want to think that actually they're going to be very critical on one hand but on another hand I also feel devastated that we have uh missed a generation I think I think again as a feminist I've let down a generation the generation below me because we didn't get anybody to act quickly enough and now we've had 10 years you know since 2014 really is this internet 2.0 free streaming, everyone has an iPhone, very easy to access. And the porn sites were behind pushing that movement of technology. You know, they're always behind these technological advances. The next one coming up is AI. And we really need to keep an eye on that and how that's being funded by the porn industries and what they're doing and where that might go. And we need to start future-proofing our law because I do feel that we've had 10 years there where we haven't acted. We've been so caught up and manipulated into thinking about this all about individual users and sexual freedoms. And we haven't thought about the responsibility of the companies platforming this material. You well, know, we um, have you, advertising you, standards, but yeah. we don't have standards for pornography material. I do wish we'd had more time, actually, to discuss everything that Dr. Fiona Vera Gray said there. Uh, but if it's something that does interest you, then I can recommend that book, Women on Porn, out in a couple of weeks in February in the UK. And um, she isn't at all judgmental about porn. In fact, she's, um, you know, she's extremely fair and um, talks about all sorts of elements 
of the industry and of people's use. She's talked to lots of women about the way they use porn. Uh, in some cases, there are plenty of women who will speak very positively about what porn has done for them and for their relationships. Some really raw stuff in there as well. And she does talk too about what's likely to happen in the future in the metaverse. And um, you won't be surprised to hear, Fee, that the um, the big tech companies are pouring trillions into how they can have sex in the metaverse and what's going to happen there and what it will be like. So I, I really struggle with so much of this conversation, Jane. And in our lifetime, our landscape of pornography has changed. And as journalists... Do you maybe share in feeling that we've just, I don't know, we've shied away from it at, at our peril? Mm. I think we... Well, uh, Fiona says that, doesn't she, in the, in the interview, that she's she feels that she's let down a generation of, of young women and girls. Yeah, we are now coming to have. it yeah, yeah. with this terrible kind of sense of shock and awe. Mm. But it's been two clicks away from us. Yeah. That's where we could have gone. We could all have looked at the type of things that we're now being so shocked that our children have looked at. Mm. But we chose not to. For whatever reason, we simply felt that it would couldn't possibly be as bad as we might imagine it to be. Or we just didn't want to address the issue at all. Yep, and and because it wasn't in our childhood, somehow it wasn't in theirs, but I think we'd just been asleep on the deck. Well, Rachel did, uh, well, I'm not sure whether she did reassure you, but she said that she believes that you can change people. They can learn to unsee the things they've yes. seen. So that, yes, and I think that point about being able to resensitize a desensitized teenager or mm. young adult or just person uh, is so key. But we can only do that if we understand just how desensitized they've become. Yeah. And that's the bit that we don't quite understand no. now. I mean, I, I think um, it's a really, that's an interesting point we could perhaps point uh, put to Sean Russell tomorrow uh, when we're talking to him about his experience of porn addiction, um, desensitisation, and, and the number of men who struggle to, quotes perform in the real world because they are so desensitised, having watched hours and hours of all sorts of pornography. It's not just men who watch it, we need to make very clear. And that's why um, Fiona's book is so interesting, because she does, uh, and the women she speaks to, are incredibly honest about their own porn use and about the stuff that does turn them on, even though they'd really struggle to discuss it um, in a close friendship or even to acknowledge it to themselves, that there's some stuff they look at, because frankly they do find it arousing, and this goes for all of us, that we would never dream of admitting to. Um, in our in our real world conversations and experiences, yeah, it's a difficult, really difficult area. This hugely difficult. I, just just one other thing that I was so struck by in uh, our conversation with Rachel D'Souza was just her experience of the people at the top of the tech companies. It's bloody terrifying. So they're people who I would suggest, uh, if they don't have children of their own, they know lots of people who do have children who are experiencing all of this, and they've chosen to to kind of leave that experience, which is the most valuable experience, outside the door of Rachel D'Souza's office and go in with their QCs and yeah. their legal counsels. Unbelievable. Which is about mitigating the effects on their company's profits of what a children's commissioner might then do or say in a report. And I just find that mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling uh, and indefensible really so I thought what she said about wanting to see you know in in the tenure of her job mm. people in jail <laughs> that's oh. 
That's what we need to see. It's a crime. It is a crime I mean, uh, to let children watch really, really yes, bad shit. It, it's a crime and it's going to impact the rest of their lives. Yeah. And it, well, I know Fiona mentioned in, her, in the conversation about the post office, but I mean, it seems ludicrous to link the two. But um, when people say, oh, why was no one doing anything um, about that issue? Well, people were, but nobody took much notice. And now um, we've got this... Uh, pornography nightmare frankly in lots of ways the impact of it on young lives is colossal clearly and i think people do need to acknowledge that some people are trying to do something and are trying to start these conversations but it's just really really difficult to get anything achieved it would seem and i do wonder what people are going to make of all this in 30 years time and they look back to the 2020s and about our our crisis that we just chose to... Oh, it's all a bit awkward. I'd rather not go there. Well, hopefully, you know, if, you, if you're listening to this in 30 years' time, what we're saying makes no sense because there's... Something will have been done. Yeah. I there don't is... think so. Do you really think no, they can put... No, I don't. I'm hoping. No, I don't I'm think hoping. they can put the genie back in the bottle here. No, but I do think that our... I think that our children's generation, when their parents themselves will just have such a better understanding of what is around that can be harmful to children that they will just police their households better and and maybe hold the companies to account better because knowledge is power and i just don't think an awful lot of us you know had that knowledge when we were young adults ourselves so anything to add it's jane and fee at times.radio and we will talk about light-hearted things as the week progresses. And actually, tomorrow we've got a fantastic interview, I know, because I've already done it, uh, with Alan Cumming. And he's so funny and interesting. He talks about plastic surgery and not Has wanting he had to any? get... Oh, no. Oh. So he, he doesn't want to kind of go down that road, but he's really interesting about it. And he's got some thoughts about the SNP. He's got some thoughts about John Burko because he's the host of US Traitors as and what's, well. And what's Alan Cumming got to do with US Traitors? He hosts it. Oh, he hosts it? Yes. Yeah. And John Burko is in it? Yes. Yeah, so Alan Cumming oh, is Claudia Winkleman. And John Burko is Paul. Are you watching Traitors? No. Paul. God. Who's Paul? Well, I think he might be the winner. He's um, he's a... I don't know what he is, actually. He's a very clever slime ball. That's what he is. Lovely. I don't think that's libelous. <laughs> Well, I hope not for your sake. Good evening to you, Paul. Um, he'll know, of course, whether he's won or not, because it's probably recorded months and months in advance, isn't it? I did watch one episode, and then I, I'm afraid I just, I, I just couldn't feel. I, I just didn't feel I had another eleven hours to give to it. Really, um, gripping though I did. I quite enjoyed the first episode. Stick that on the posters. Um, right. Have a good evening, everybody. We'll reconvene tomorrow. We will reconvene. Goodbye. Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run. Or running a bank. Thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly. Running a bank? I know, ladies. A lady listener. Sorry.
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.